This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening. Welcome. My name's Aaron Bastani. I'm delighted to be joining you tonight, my first show hosting this year. Hope you're well. Uh, tonight I'm joined by the wonderful, the immaculate Michael Walker. Michael, how are we? Uh, very well. A pleasure to be co-hosting on your show today. Looking forward to it. We've had a bit of a face-off situation here. Normally it's me down the line. Tonight it's Michael. I'll try and uh, I'll try and live up to the master. Coming up later this evening, more on the post office sub-postmaster scandal, the absurd situation with student loans and the interest so many graduates are paying on them. And it's official. 2023 was the hottest year on record. Stay tuned for all of that. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Israel. Today, he has held meetings with Israeli officials and, of course, met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The two discussed the future governance of Gaza. But the real reason for Blinken's visit is to defuse tensions in the region. But Blinken is also there to try and constrain Israel's actions against Gaza, while reiterating the US's support for its attacks. Following that meeting with Netanyahu, Blinken said this, met with Israeli PM and reaffirmed our support for Israel's right to prevent another October 7th from occurring. I also stressed the importance of avoiding civilian harm, protecting civilian infrastructure, and ensuring the distribution of humanitarian assistance throughout Gaza. Blinken's visit comes in the wake of an increase in hostilities between Israel and other states. This morning, Hezbollah launched a series of drone strikes against a key military command base in Safed in northern Israel. And shortly afterwards, Israel launched an attack inside Lebanon, killing two Hezbollah fighters in Ganduria, a village around 10 kilometers from the Israeli border. That follows Israel's assassination of a Hezbollah commander in Lebanon yesterday, as well as senior Hamas leader Salah al-Aruri last week. Speaking to Al Jazeera, Mohammed al Mazri of the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies said this about the situation. I think right now there's significant disagreement inside Israel's military establishment to what extent they want to go into an all-out war. Uh, what we know is Benjamin Netanyahu would like to see something more expansive. That would be more advantageous to his own political ambitions. Israel right now is going to continue and try and provoke Hezbollah, and the ball is really in Hezbollah's court as to what they do next. It's got to be a very difficult calculation. Hezbollah won't look good, like it has much deterrence, if it doesn't respond forcefully. Israel is also reported to have carried out a series of deadly strikes in Syria, targeting people, infrastructure, and transport, allegedly involved in the transit of weapons from Iran to Hezbollah. Israel has long targeted Iran-linked targets in Syria, but sources, including a Syrian military intelligence commander and officer, said that Israel has shifted its strategy, conducting frequent strikes against bigger targets in Syria. Reuters reports this. The commander in the regional alliance and two additional sources familiar with Hezbollah's thinking said Israel had abandoned the unspoken rules of the game that previously characterized its strikes in Syria and seemed no longer cautious about inflicting heavy casualties on Hezbollah there. This is how that commander described Israeli raids on arms transfers handled by Hezbollah before October 7th. They used to fire warning shots. They'd hit near the truck. Our guys would get out of the truck and then they'd hit the truck. Now that's over. 
Israel is now unleashing deadlier, more frequent air raids against Iranian arms transfers and air defense systems in Syria. They bomb everyone directly. They bomb to kill. Israel has killed 19 Hezbollah fighters in Syria in the last three months, more than double the number for the rest of 2023 combined. In that period, it's also killed 130 Hezbollah fighters in Lebanon. Over the weekend, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah delivered a televised speech. In an indication of how Hezbollah is seeing the conflict spreading, he said this, We had a formula before the October 7th Aqsa flood operation. If they killed any of our brothers in Syria, we would respond on the Lebanon front which was calm. Practically, this formula's conditions have changed. Why? Because the whole front is lit up now. Israel's bombardments in Syria have also killed members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, the elite branch of Iran's military. Two guards were killed in early December, and in late December, a high-profile senior advisor to the guards was killed in Damascus. Blinken's visit also comes as Israel prepares to defend itself against charges of genocidal acts in Gaza, on Thursday, South Africa will bring a case against the country in the International Court of Justice. That case came up in Blinken's meeting with Israeli President Isaac Herzog earlier today. A proceeding will start in the International Court of Justice in The Hague, whereby South Africa has sued Israel for supposedly genocide. There's nothing more atrocious and preposterous than this claim. Actually, our enemies, the Hamas, in their charter, call for the destruction and annihilation of the state of Israel, the only nation-state of the Jewish people. The Convention Against Genocide was uh, enacted by the international community following the worst atrocities of humankind, the Shoah, the Holocaust, which was aimed specifically against the Jews, the Jewish people, in order to eliminate the Jewish race, the Jewish people. In Hamas's charter, it's almost identical in many, many ways. And here, with the hypocrisy of South Africa, we will be there in the International Court of Justice and pre will present proudly our case of using self-defense under our most inherent right under international humanitarian law, where we are doing our utmost under extremely complicated circumstances on the ground to make sure that there will be no unintended consequences and no civilian casualties. Given more than 23,000 Palestinians in Gaza have now been killed by Israel, the claim that Israel is working to prevent civilian deaths is astonishing. And yet Blinken just nods along. Also trying to defend Israel against accusations of war crimes today was British Foreign Secretary David Cameron, who was left squirming before Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee when this happened. About two or three minutes ago, in answer uh, a reply to the chair, you said, and I quote, one of the things we'd like the Israelis to do is switch the water back on. Now, that says that they turned it off. It says that you recognise they have the power to turn it on. Therefore, isn't turning water off and having the ability to turn it back on but choosing not to, isn't that a breach of international humanitarian law? It's just something they ought to do, in my no, opinion. No, I'm, uh, of course they should do it. Every yeah. human being would say, yeah. you don't cut people's water supply off. But I'm asking you in your position as Foreign Secretary, well, I don't, around I the mean, point of international humanitarian yeah. law, if Israel have the power to turn the water back on that they turned off, surely that is a flagrant breach of international humanitarian law. 
Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. My, my view is they ought to switch it on because uh, the north of Gaza, the conflict is now effectively over there. And so getting more water and power into northern Gaza would be a very good thing to do. You don't have to be a lawyer to make a judgment about that. You just have to be a human being. And in a separate exchange with committee chair Alicia Kearns, Cameron revealed just how differently the UK government is treating Israel. During the hostilities in Gaza uh, in 2014, your government... Uh, decided to review licences for arms exports to Israel um, and you committed not to grant any further licences until hostilities were ceased. I think there were 12 specific licences that you were concerned about at the time. Why has there been no review, cessation, pause, despite the fact there should be an automatic trigger that exists within the department to immediately suspend when there's a significant change on the ground? Well, the way this works is that... um as I'm sure you, you know, that the, the grant of licenses is done by the Department of Trade on the advice of the Foreign Office. And the Foreign Office has to look at um, compliance with international humanitarian law based on an assessment of the um, commitment that Israel has, the um, capability that they have, can they actually deliver on this capability, and the compliance. And that assessment is, is carried out on a sort of rolling basis. And so it is sort of permanently reviewed. And were the circumstances to change and us to reach a different view, we'd advise the Department of Trade accordingly. The immediate handbrake that, for example, after the terrorist attack in Kosovo, there was an immediate handbrake put in place in terms of sales of arms to Serbia. There was no immediate handbrake, as I am aware of, on this situation, despite there having been an enormous terrorist attack and then a response. And there I hasn't think, been a specific I, I think it's review because of the circumstances, I mean, the circumstances are different because of... October the 7th being such a hostile attack on Israel um, and the government's position that Israel has a right to defend itself and a right to try and stop Hamas from launching future terrorist attacks, that there wouldn't be, be odd to have an automatic handbrake. What you have to do is assess on an ongoing basis, which is what we're doing. Israel has a, a full right to defend itself in international humanitarian law, but the British government has a duty to ensure that its export licenses are for arms exports as accurate as they can be. So you are not aware of any review within the system formally. Rolling basis, the point of a rolling basis that you have the emergency handbrake when it's needed. It, it, well, it's as you described. I mean, it, but it you is... put one in place, which is why I'm surprised that there hasn't been one in 2014. Yes, but when but... the casualties are so much higher this time. I have to say, very good questions, very well chaired. Uh, Michael, the implication from what David Cameron was saying there was that Israel is effectively immune from international law because of the events of October 7th. It seems to now no longer apply to Israel. That was my read anyway, uh, besides other stuff he was saying. Uh, what did you make of it? Well, I mean, that seems to be exactly the same as what's happening in the US at the moment. So you'll remember Josh Paul, who was the State Department official who resigned. Now, he was in charge of, well, not in charge of, I mean, he was high up um, in terms of arms licensing to foreign countries. And he said um, that when it came to Israel, especially after October the 7th, any kind of checks and balances had gone out of the window, basically from the very top. So the president and the White House were saying, look, whatever they want, we're going to send it to them. And it does seem to me that the UK is taking the same approach. And this is what I find most frustrating about Western politicians. So both American presidents, I mean, they've all basically done the same thing. And UK prime ministers, they've all basically done the same thing, which is to say, we are opposed um, to Israel's 
illegal actions, their ongoing occupation, their expansion of settlements in the West Bank. And in this case, they say we're opposed to them turning off the water. We're opposed to them you know, bombing hospitals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Joe Biden actually just outright justified that. But you, you will hear them sort of pay lip service to the idea of limiting and minimizing civilian casualties. But then what do they do? They go out of their way to give them all the capacity to continue carrying out their war crimes and don't impose any consequences whatsoever when Israel do, you know, it publicly, um, the US is saying, please don't kill civilians. Israel, do it publicly. Um, Britain and America have been saying for a long time, please don't expand settlements in the West Bank. Israel, do it. Privately, what do we do? We continue selling them the weapons. We continue trading them. We continue giving them diplomatic support in the UN and elsewhere. That's both a, a moral travesty when it comes to the Palestinians, the human rights of Palestinians. Also, very, very risky. So at the start of this segment, Aaron, you were talking about you know, the possibility for this war expanding. And this is both terrifying and also completely bizarre that this is being supported by the US and the UK, because there is only one country in the Middle East right now that wants this to grow into a wider war. And that's Israel. Now, they have three reasons why they might want that to happen. So one, I think they think they can get away with more in Gaza, the more they escalate. So I think they have this attitude that, yes, it might be against international law to sort of expel everyone from, from Gaza, maybe not officially. You sort of make life just unlivable and then say, oh, they, they left of their own accord, even though you bombed the houses. They think that that's going to be easier to do under the cover of a regional war. Also, they've wanted for a while now to sort of push Hezbollah back in, in Lebanon. They think that the current conflict will maybe give them the opportunity to do that. And ultimately... Um, Israel has been very keen to draw the United States into a war with Iran for a very, very long time. And that's because they're terrified of Iran gaining nuclear capabilities, not because there's a serious possibility that Iran would bomb Tel Aviv, but because if Iran gets nuclear capabilities, then they'll have a stronger deterrent about Israel trying to get their way in the Middle East. Um, so you've got a very dangerous situation where Israel seems to want expansion. No one else does. So Hezbollah are terrified of expanding this war. Um, 2006 war that they were engaged with in, in Israel didn't really go well for the Lebanese people. It didn't go well for the Israeli army either, by the way. Um, but that put them under pressure in Lebanon. Iran doesn't, I mean, they're not going to come out very well um, by a war in Israel. They might not have complete defeat, but they're obviously going to take huge, huge casualties. We'll probably end up with state failure, something a bit like post-Iraq 2003. So no, no one else wants it. Um, but they're in this sort of bind because they've said, you know, we are the defenders of, of Palestinians. They've said, if Israel crosses these red lines, we will get involved. And now Israel's keep poking them. Israel's just prodding them. Okay, well, we've uh, we've um, assassinated this um, commander in Beirut, in your capital. We've assassinated this commander deep in Syria. We've assassinated XYZ, all of these people. Aren't you going to respond? So basically, Israel is baiting the axis of resistance to get involved. They don't want to get involved, but they're in a risky position now because... They could be seen as paper tigers if they don't. So very, very dangerous situation. And in terms of de-escalating this conflict, the United States and the UK are doing the precise opposite of what they should be doing. We should be saying, Israel, you're not behaving in a sensible way. Therefore, we're going to withdraw our support. What do we say in public? Oh, we'd like some de-escalation, but here, have some more bombs. Yeah, and in the case of the United States, even supplying the Israelis with weapons while bypassing Congress. The point you made about targeting Hezbollah targets inside uh, Lebanon or even Iranian military personnel inside Syria, this has to be impressed upon 
our audience, I mean, they know already they're very smart, but this is not a normal way for a country to behave. Is, is there something to the argument that because the US has done this for so long, you know, extrajudicial killings in Yemen or Afghanistan or Iraq, drone strikes, et cetera, often which went wrong, by the way, because the Americans did it, people think it's normal. But I mean, no European country behaves like this. And you already have Israel targeting Iranian military personnel in Syria. You might say, well, why are they in Syria? Well, Bashar al-Assad wants them there. You might not recognize that government, but that, that's why they're there. And I have to ask the question, really, at what point do you stop striking Revolutionary Guard officers in Syria and start striking them in Iran, which is, of course, what, you know, the US came very close to with um, Qasem Soleimani, although, of course, that wasn't in mainland Iran. I think that was in Iraq at the time. Uh, but regardless, that was a huge escalation. And it feels like Israel is not that far from doing something quite similar. They're probing the boundaries here, and it doesn't feel like anybody's reining them in. Michael, how likely do you think we are to see a war in West Asia this year. It doesn't need to be a declaration of war, two armies massed on both sides, but large numbers of casualties involving Iran on one side, Israel on the other, over the course of the next 12 months. Mm, I mean, the, the biggest danger probably is Lebanon, right? Because Israel does have this ambition to push back Hezbollah. Lots of what I'm saying I got from Trita Parsi. I mean, I've got a podcast coming out with him tomorrow on the axis of resistance. Very, very clever guy. But um, he's saying that sort of Israel have this this changed idea now. We There were people who said we could just sort of ignore Gaza and ignore Hamas and sort of live with them. Um, but um, the result was October the 7th. So now they've, they've got this idea that we cannot tolerate anyone hostile on our borders. And so there is this desire to push back Hezbollah um, further north in 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 Lebanon, so I could imagine, um, you know, them them just keep taking actions so provocative deep inside Lebanon that Hezbollah sort of don't have much choice but to respond. Um, obviously, you know, a, a, a direct war between Israel and Iran and presumably America. I mean, that's you know, I, I would say that's less than fifty percent chance it's going to happen, right? But but that shouldn't really reassure people because if that did happen, that would be so so disastrous. Um, above all for people in the Middle East, above all for people in Iran, probably, um, because if that state collapses, God, what's going to happen, right? Uh, that would be a complete humanitarian disaster. But that seems less likely. Uh, a war on, on Lebanon's border and a war in southern Lebanon does seem a lot more likely to me. And then that would sort of mean that Iran's sort of proxies in the region would become more 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 active. In terms of this idea of sort of... Um, you know, cross-border assassinations. As far as I understand, it is a bit more normal um, in the Middle East than it is in many other parts of the world. These sort of tit for tat, where you sort of kill someone else's proxy in a different country. So you know, Israel has its proxies in 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 Syria as well, and Iran sometimes assassinate them, and then the Israelis assassinate an Iranian proxy. But you don't do it in each other's country. So Israel never does it in Iran. Iran never does it in Israel. Um, you do it in these sort of weaker countries: Syria, Lebanon. Um, but apparently, um, as I understand it, it was not part of that tit for tat that you would go all the way to Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. And, and, and that's what was particularly provocative in this case. Also, just to be clear, these are Iranians that are now being killed in Syria. So it's not just, you know, Syrian national forces who are arguably Iranian proxies. It's um, Iranian RGC people being killed. Um just to finish on the story, Michael, uh, I, I, my personal view is that a war between Israel and Iran would probably mean the destruction of both countries. 
Um, but for people watching this in Europe, uh, we would get massive energy inflation, I mean, a massive global recession, I think, and millions of refugees coming into Europe. Um, and I think one of the main takeaways from me analyzing this over the last 12 months is that one of the reasons why the US keeps on making completely inexplicable foreign policy decisions is that they are inoculated from any consequences. They have energy, they're an energy exporter, and of course, they're protected by two oceans. Uh, but the idea of a large failed state, a large failed state in, the, in, the, in this instance, Iran, so close to Europe, uh, or for instance, Egypt, on the Mediterranean. I, I don't think policymakers, politicians in Europe are taking this seriously enough. That would have extraordinary consequences for all of us. You could not ignore it, and yet our politicians are either ignoring this or they're cheering it on. And next story. Uh, the post office submasters scandal has been dominating headlines ever since ITV broadcast their dramatization last week. The drama is called Mr. Bates versus the Post Office, and having finished it last night, I can testify to just how good it is. And while over 700 people were wrongly convicted of fraud, theft, and false accounting over a 20-year period, their lives left in tatters, it's only now that heads are beginning to roll. Paula Venels was chief executive of the post office between 2012 and 2019, the period in which a large number of false prosecutions took place. It was also under her watch that post office prosecutors failed to disclose known problems with the Horizon software used in post office branches. Those problems led to accounting errors for which innocent branch managers were jailed and financially ruined. Some even committed suicide. Venels was, quite remarkably, awarded a CBE in 2019, and she's now said she'll return that. But that only came after a petition to have her stripped of the honor gained more than 1.2 million signatures. In a statement, Venels said this, I have so far maintained my silence as I consider it inappropriate to comment publicly while the inquiry remains ongoing and before I have provided my oral evidence. I am, however, aware of the calls from sub-postmasters and others to return my CBE. I have listened, and I confirm that I uh, will return my CBE with immediate effect. I am truly sorry for the devastation caused to these sub-postmasters and their families, whose lives were torn apart by being wrongly accused and wrongly prosecuted as a result of the Horizon system. Of course, returning a bauble isn't that difficult. Which is perhaps why the Communication Workers Union has suggested Venels makes a more painful sacrifice. They've called for her to return the bonuses she was paid while the post office harassed, criminalized, and ruined its sub-postmasters. The inquiry Venels referred to in her statement is the government's independent inquiry into the scandal. It's been rolling on since 2020 and won't report until summer this year at the earliest. Yet, in 2019, it was already suspected that the post office had wrongfully pursued a number of sub-postmasters. That was after some 500 wrongfully convicted sub-postmasters took the post office to court. So, given that context, why was Venels awarded a CBE later that year? That's a question Susanna Reid put to former post office minister Paul Scully on GMB. Who in government thought it was appropriate, while a massive legal case involving 500 people harassed, persecuted by the post office, who thought it was appropriate to recommend her 
for a CBE? I have no idea. But this, you were but pissed off the minister a, afterwards. Uh, afterwards, Surely. But, it's a, but it's a really good question. When you say that you had the advantage <clears throat> of knowing that legal case, did you not then have the perspective of saying, how on earth did we give an honour to the woman who was in charge during those, some yeah, of those years? Yeah, I think there's two things. I mean, th first of all, what I've been wanting to do, when I was, especially when I was minister, setting up the inquiry, I wanted to make sure that we get those answers, but I wanted it to be done through the inquiry because I want Paula Venos to be there giving evidence. I wanted Fujitsu to be there. And bear in mind, what I did originally was to make it non-statutory so they didn't have to come. The reason I did that was because I, I didn't want it to drag on. And okay. uh, But have you asked who recommended Paula Venos? I haven't done that yet. I haven't done that yet. Why but not? I will be well, I will be doing that. I will be doing that because it goes through cabinet office. It goes through the cabinet office and and there's an honours committee that mm. have to uh uh, that have to uh, approve, do, approve that. Yeah. And it's, it's not particularly, you know, it, there is an independent committee, but it's not particularly transparent. The, okay, Wallace, um, mm. it just, I think, you know, more than one million people have said that she should be stripped of yeah. her CBE. It, and mean, every time, you know, with all due respect to Paul Scully, and I'm glad you're here this morning, mm. and I know that a lot of this happened before your watch, you know, the scandal took place before your watch. But every time we talk to someone who's in charge, they say, well, there's an inquiry, so we've done that. And, you know, it's really important that people answer questions. But this has been going on. You started investigating in 2010. It's been going on since the 1990s. The government are complicit in this scandal. Paula Venels wasn't just given a CBE. She was given a seat on the Cabinet Office Board and the chairmanship of a large NHS trust as a reward for denying justice to the mm -hmm. campaigning sub-postmasters to attritionally and aggressively litigate against them in the High Court. That was backed by the government. The post office is 100% owned by the government. It wasn't just the government rewarding Vanels for her role in the sub-postmaster scandal. The Church of England came close to letting her fail upwards too. It's now emerged that Vanels, who is an ordained minister in the Church of England, was shortlisted to be the Bishop of London in 2017. You can't make it up. According to sources who spoke to the Times newspaper, she was indeed the preferred candidate of Justin Welby, the arch Bishop of Canterbury. Now, someone likely to be breathing a sigh of relief while attention is focused on Paula Venels is Lib Dem leader Ed Davey. And that's because he was Postal Affairs Minister in the coalition government between 2010 and 2012. And during that time, someone hoping to meet with Mr. Davey was this man, Alan Bates. He is a former sub-postmaster who was falsely blamed by the post office for apparent missing funds in his branch. He also led the decade-long campaign for justice for the wrongly accused sub-postmasters. But in 2010, Ed Davey initially refused to meet with Bates to discuss the scandal. And later that year, Davey and Bates did meet, but Davey still failed to tackle post office bosses. Speaking to Sky News about the scandal, he explained why. I wish I'd known then what we all know now. The post office was lying on an industrial scale to me and other ministers. And when I met uh, Alan Bates and listened to his concerns, I put those concerns to the officials in my department, to the post office, to the National Federation of Postmasters. And it's clear they all were lying to me. And my heart goes out to all those people. We need to make sure their convictions are overturned and we need to make sure they are fairly compensated and quickly. My heart goes out to them. I didn't do anything when it mattered, but my heart goes out to them. You know, it's a bit like people that won't give nurses and doctors a pay rise, but they'll give them claps. You know, you can't pay your mortgage with claps or people giving their heart to you. It doesn't mean anything. 
Of course, Ed Davey was only postal minister for two years, though after he left the government, he went on to earn £275,000 as a consultant with law firm Herbert Smith Freehills, who acted for, guess who? The post office. Ed Davey was followed as postal minister by another Lib Dem, Joe Swinson, who backed the post office too. But it's the Tories, not the Lib Dems, who've been in power for the last 13 years. On GMB, Work and Pensions Minister Mel Stride was asked about their record on the scandal. The government is the sole shareholder in the post office. You effectively run the post office. You're responsible for it. Hundreds and hundreds of these people, innocent people, were being prosecuted on the base of, as David Davis, colleague of yours, said, a single lie. How come the government didn't notice? You were asleep on, uh, on duty, weren't you? Well, well, I wouldn't accept that, Susanna, um, because we, we, we did, well, we, we did set up uh, some years back now uh, an inquiry on, under Sir Wynne uh, uh, Williams, who's a very uh, distinguished uh, former High Court uh, judge to get to the bottom of exactly what happened. So we've recognised yes, that there's been Yes, but it carried on happening while you were in well, government for we, a number also, of years. Yes, but, but, but we've also, as, as I said, we, we have already made, for example, £138 million worth of compensation payments to 2,700 people. So it's not that we've just suddenly come to this issue. But it, we're but talking about what, 13 years of government, three well, years of which or a number, actually five years of which, these prosecutions carried on taking place. I ask yeah. again, why didn't the ministers in charge of the post office, when mm. you first came into government, go, hang on a minute, there are hundreds of people being prosecuted here. They can't, 700 people, and those are the ones who are convicted. Mm. They can't all be criminals. What's yeah. going wrong here? Well, the, you're quite rightly asking really fundamental and important questions, and there are many others, and that's why we've set up the inquiry. So far, only 93 wrongly convicted people have had their convictions overturned. And that's because the process requires the wrongly convicted person to come forward and begin legal proceedings to undo the wrong they've suffered. That can be incredibly hard, very challenging, time-consuming. But calls are growing for the government to provide a blanket exoneration of all those convicted by the post office. Speaking on the BBC, a former sub-postmaster, Lee Castleton, joined those calls. Everything in the system, everywhere, where, whether it's CRC, CCRC or whatever, isn't set up for 900 wrong, wrongly convicted people. And, and also the system's not set up to, to listen to 4,000 people's stories to then seek compensation, but we need to find a way. And I think there's so many stumbling blocks and so, com so many complications and so many people that want their own way rather than just getting through it. And um, So the idea of our MPs maybe passing a law that would exonerate everyone yeah. in one go, is that what you'd well, like? I, obviously, I'm no lawyer, uh, as I proved in the High Court. And uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the whole process, however that has to be seen, to be done is about the victims, really. And, and I, people were talking about the fact that maybe the judiciary wouldn't be very happy if Parliament stepped in or whatever. Does it really matter? Is it not just about the people at the other end, the victims? Let's just do whatever's the best thing for the victims for once and just get across that, that upsetting the judiciary or whomever. And I'm not saying that they, there's a part to play for everybody and, and that part needs playing and moving forward as quickly as possible, really. Now, Michael, I know you haven't watched this. I recommend you do. It's very good, by the way. 
when people recommend I'm ITV, it. I'm, I promise to watch it this evening. It's four episodes. Yeah, it's four episodes. It's not you know, it's I'll not watch quick. One episode this evening. Yeah, yeah. I, I watched four. I finished last night with my wife watching it, and um, when people recommend ITV dramas to you, like whatever, it's not the nineties. Honestly, this is the best TV drama I've seen in years. Forget Netflix, Apple TV, incredible. Um, what does it say, however, that obviously these cases have been proceeding through court and whatnot, there's been political coverage, there's been obviously this inquiry and everything, but what does it say that actually some people are now beginning to get justice or beginning to have their stories heard by the wider public because it's become a, a TV drama? Mm, I mean, it is. I mean, credit to, to 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 the producers for for making this show. But can they can they make some shows about some more things? I mean, it it, it is incredible how much this has exploded since this drama, which, as I say, I haven't yet watched, was released because all this info no no new information has come into the public domain. I mean, the past few days, I think that's quite important to to know. All that has happened is that this has captured the imagination of vast swathes of the British public, quite rightly. Um, after seeing this drama and then people have sought out information about it and then sort of the news organizations have responded um, by putting it at, at the top of the news agenda. I mean, I, I would love to see an ITV drama about the the shocking conditions of, of, of council tenants um, in sort of houses which are covered in mould of, of, of private renters um, who can't possibly afford to stay in their homes, who's, who's getting their rent jacked up 30% of, I mean, you know what we'd be really ready for at this point in time? an ITV drama about asylum seekers, you know, the most demonized um, section of our society at the moment. The way they are talked about is, you know, I, I think really grotesque. And uh, an ITV drama that humanized those people and sort of showed the, the, the strength and courage it takes um, to flee war, to flee persecution and go halfway across the world. Maybe that would have some effect on the people who sort of shamelessly talk about them like their, their chances, people who are queue jumping. I think an ITV documentary about that would be very, very welcome. You could also think potentially about trans people. Obviously, trans people are a group in society who are being talked about, you know, like they are predators, essentially. Um, so there are so many aspects of society that I think could do with this kind of treatment. It is worth saying, actually, that ITV, you know, I know you sort of say, you know, it's not the 90s anymore. When it comes to sort of both campaigning dramas and campaigning news coverage, um, they're not bad. You know, I was talking about you know, the mouldy social housing. Now, it was always ITV News that was putting that front and centre. Um, I, I wonder if it's because the BBC are a little bit reluctant to do campaigning journalism because of their connection to the government, because they're always on the back foot. They're always sort of terrified about being called woke. Um, so so they seem to be actually a little bit more, you know, hands off when it comes to these things. So fair play to to ITV for willing to to sort of start these, these campaigns, even if it is in the form of a, a drama programme. Yeah, it's a really great point you raise. For me, it was a real throwback because I'm not I'm not diminishing ITV. They just had a lot more money in the 90s because, of course, TV ads paid lots of money. They had more money than the BBC. Um, and, of course, that's changed over the last 20 years. But I think you're right here to highlight the importance of ITV and its independence from government in, in a way that's not really enjoyed by the BBC. Uh, and often people on the left, they like to defend the BBC as if they're the only people capable of producing public interest journalism or public interest drama. Simply not true. And actually, I think what this has reaffirmed to me is the importance of a pluralistic media environment um, and making sure that great documentary makers, current affairs journalists, and drama producers, writers uh, can get in on the act. You know, uh, I, I was watching this and I thought the power of drama, of course, based on a true story, is a true story. 
not not based, is a true story. The names are the names. Um, it made me think, you know, what if Navarra could one day become a production studio, Michael? HBO of the left. Um, if only. We certainly need it, like you say. Uh, and nobody else is doing it. Next story. It's official. 2023 was the hottest year since records began. And month after month, 2023 didn't just break global temperature records, it shattered them. The year began hotter than usual, but by June, the monthly average global temperature soared well above previous record levels. That trend continued into July, then August, and then every month right up to December. Averaged across the year, global temperatures were 1.48 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. According to the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, countries should limit global temperature rises to 2 degrees Celsius, but aim to keep it under 1.5 degrees. But climate researchers agree that at the present rate of greenhouse gas emissions, principally carbon dioxide, the climate goal will fast become unachievable. And it's widely agreed by climate scientists that greenhouse gas emissions are largely to blame for the record heat we've seen last year. The El Nino weather system, which raises global temperatures, may also have played a part, though scientists have pointed that it didn't begin until the middle of the year. And that suggests that it didn't play a major role, but also raises the probability of 2024 becoming yet another record-breaking year. As scientists at the EU's Copernicus Climate Change Services have said that the 1.5 degree global average temperature limit is likely to be surpassed for the first time in the next 12 months. That's a major threshold. The global ocean temperatures also broke all records last year. The red areas on this chart show the difference between 2023's daily ocean temperatures and the previous record. On some days, that amounted to as much as a quarter of a degree Celsius. Rising temperatures may also explain the intensity of 2023's weather events, from widespread forest fires across North America and Europe to extreme rainfall and flooding in North and East Africa. It also accounts for other bleak milestones hit last year. Antarctica's sea ice hit a low, well below previously recorded levels, while Arctic sea ice was also far below average. Meanwhile, glaciers in North America and the European Alps underwent melting at a rate much higher than usual, contributing to rising sea levels. Bleak news indeed. But Professor Andrew Dressler of Texas A&M University managed to put an even bleaker spin on it. He told The Guardian this, Every year for the rest of your life will be one of the hottest on record. This in turn means that 2023 will end up being one of the coldest years of this century. Enjoy it while it lasts. Earlier today, I spoke to climate scientist Ella Gilbert. We discussed all of this and more. This year, we were literally just a sniff away from that critical threshold, but we can't necessarily say that we have reached 1.5 degrees yet. So I think one third of the days in 2023 exceeded that 1.5 degree um, threshold above pre-industrial temperatures. And in fact, we saw temperatures two degrees above pre-industrial on, I think it was two or three days in September. But we consider that 1.5 degree target, the one that's enshrined in the Paris Agreement of 2015, um, as being long-term averages. So it has to be more like 20 years, um, which means that if we're thinking about when we exceed 1.5, because you take an average 10 years before, 10 years after any given year, you basically only know when you've passed it in retrospect. So it's very, very likely that 
uh, we're going to see uh, temporarily um, temperatures exceeding 1.5 next year, or sorry, this year, um, and probably it's going to continue into the future. But in, in all likelihood, we still expect that 1.5 degree threshold to be met sometime in the 2030s. So we won't definitively know that we've, we've gone past 1.5 until probably the mid-2040s. Potentially, yeah. I mean, some, uh, in fact, some of my colleagues at the Met Office released a new method uh, last month, I think it was, which basically combines observations of the last 10 years with projections from models for the next 10 years. So it gives us a bit more of an early warning, and that would allow us to sort of track where we're at in real time, which would be a really helpful thing so that we know what we need to do and what kind of adaptation we need to make. For the average person, 1.5 degrees doesn't sound like especially much. It's the difference in climate between, say, London and Paris. Uh, obviously, two degrees is slightly more. But again, it doesn't sound like a large number. So so why is it so troubling that we may already be on the, the precipice with regards to 1.5 degrees warming? Yeah, I mean, we saw in 2023 what kind of havoc 1.4a, which is for all intents and purposes, 1.5 degrees can wreak. You know, we saw wildfires in roads. We saw wildfires in North America. We saw it in Hawaii, like all, all these heat waves, all these floods, all these really wild weather extremes that take, took people's lives. They, they claimed people's lives. They claimed people's livelihoods. They decimated uh, the local economy in so many places. And this is just further evidence of how profoundly we are changing our climate with real tangible direct impacts on people and ecosystems. So it's just a taste of what's to come. Um, It's very likely that 2024 will be even hotter than 2023. And unless we do something very meaningful about climate change, then it's only going to get worse as we go on into the future. This warming, obviously these are global averages, but this isn't evenly distributed, is it? So 1.5 1.5 degrees warming or 1.48 degrees warming isn't um, isn't universally the case. It depends where you are on the on the uh, surface of the planet. Which parts of the globe are seeing the highest warming? Yeah, exactly. That is completely true. Like the average disguises a lot of variability between different parts of the planet. First of all, land warms faster than the ocean. And the second thing is that the polar regions feel the most impacts of of that warming. So the Arctic is warming three times faster than the rest of the planet. Parts of the Arctic are warming up to seven times faster than the rest of the planet. This year, we saw completely crazy uh, lows in the Antarctic, for example, um, massive amounts of losses of, of floating sea ice uh, in 2023. Um, ocean temperatures also rose really dramatically. So essentially, the polar regions are feeling the most warming, and that has very significant impact for all of us because the polar regions reflect loads of energy back to space and keep the planet relatively cool. So they act as a planetary refrigerator, if you like. And the more that we change the polar regions, the more that we reduce the amount of ice that is present there, we reduce the that cooling capacity of the polar regions and start amplifying the warming that we've already started. Um, and not to mention, of course, the sea level impacts because there's huge amounts of ice in the polar regions. And if we uh, warm them up and uh, make that ice melt, then that has sea level rise implications for the whole planet and, you know, the country like the UK, which has loads of coastlines. Um, I think we're probably called keenly aware of the impacts of flooding at the moment, given um, the amount of flooding in the news. Uh, that has really significant effects for, for coastal places like in the UK. 
And it's not just rising uh, sea levels when it comes to oceans. It's also the fact that they're getting warmer, as you as you hinted at. What does that mean? Again, to the layperson, a 1.5 degree or a 2 degree uh, change in the temperatures of the ocean doesn't sound like very much. These are quite small numbers on a human scale. But 2 degrees warming does something quite significant to our planet's oceans, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are a really large number of effects. But for one thing, uh, a warmer ocean is less able to suck up and store carbon dioxide. So at the moment, a huge amount of the greenhouse gases that we emit um, from the burning of fossil fuels ends up in the ocean. And a huge amount of the heat that we produce, up to 90%, ends up in the ocean. And a warmer ocean is less able to absorb carbon dioxide particularly, and store it at depths. So we're actually, the more we push uh, the climate system, the more we push the ocean, the less able it is to kind of do us the service of dampening the effects of climate change. And it means that it starts to accelerate. Um, And that's also warming the ocean changes things like ocean currents. It has impacts on weather patterns, on how often storms occur, all of these sorts of things. And all of the different components of the climate, whether it's oceans or weather or kind of the atmosphere or ecosystems, they're all really intimately related. So even though it sounds like a really small number, 1.5 or 2 degrees, actually every fraction of a degree makes a very big difference. And it has these cascades of effects that can be felt rippling all over the world. Speaking of cascades, this is something that was remarked upon, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, that we are looking at a bunch of feedbacks, um, although we don't quite know how quickly, 1.5 and then 2, but then 2 could lead to 3, to 4, to 5, etc. How quickly could we go from 2 to 3, precisely because we're losing things like Arctic ice uh, and because oceans are absorbing less CO2, as you've already described? Unfortunately, we don't know that for sure. And that's why it's so urgent that we limit warming to as low a number as we possibly can, because the more we we know that above 1.5, things start to get a bit hairy. Um, but we don't know exactly where or if there is a kind of critical threshold beyond which warming gets, you know, all these extreme tipping points get triggered. Um, but every single increment of warming above that kind of quote unquote safe level um, increases the risk. So if we are at 1.5, we are much less likely to trigger those really dramatic, really long-term irreversible changes than if we allow our warming to to reach three degrees or so, which is kind of what we're on track for at the moment. So we don't know exactly, and tipping points and cascades of effects are something that are really a hot topic in in research at the moment. Um, But we just know that the less warming that we see, it's pretty straightforward. The less warming we see, the less risk there is. Well, that was me speaking to Ella Gilbert earlier today. She is brilliant. Always, always enjoy what she has to say. It was the first time I've spoken to her, Fauna Navarro, often with Michael, but really, really excellent stuff. Uh, there is a very strange story, um, which I think highlights the madness of what's going on right now with climate change. Arctic ice from Greenland is now being shipped to parts of the Middle East. Because apparently it has less bubbles. So the ice in your margarita in Dubai uh, will come from Greenland. The background to that is, of course, that of the 100 cities most at risk from climate change, 99 are in Asia. 99. That might, you might not believe that. You might thought, well, there's New York, there's London. I mean, they have money to build infrastructure. Of the 100 cities most at risk, 99 are in Asia. Jakarta is literally sinking. 
very quickly, by the way. Uh, the same with Shanghai. You have all that risk posed by climate change in Asia, and we are seeing Arctic ice go from Greenland to the UAE. Crazy. Next story. Now, this is a complex story, but it's important. I want you to stick with me. It may have you uh, scratching your head at times, but I think it's worth it. How Britain finances university tuition has dramatically changed over the last 25 years. We went from grants to loans, fees, and student debt. Then the fees went up 300%, as did the terms of people's student loans. And yet, despite all that, it now seems the government is losing money on loans, even when they're paid back in full. Now, I thought the point was to save the government money, even make the government money. But the opposite now appears to be happening. This is all laid out in a new report by the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the IFS. This report is only 12 pages long, but the key takeaways are hugely important, and they completely undermine the reasoning behind changes to student finance after 2010. The IFS says this, In recent years, the government's borrowing costs have always been lower than the interest rates it charged on student loans. This is now expected to change. Yields on gilts, government bonds, have risen substantially over the past two years and are now higher than expected RPI, retail prices index inflation. That's one kind of inflation, which will determine the interest rate on newly issued student loans. As a result, as well as making a loss on the loans that are not repaid, the government can now also expect to make a loss on the loans that are. You heard that correctly. Even loans which are entirely paid back will see the government lose money. The report goes on to add this. Worryingly, this extra cost is not reflected in the government's official measures of the cost of student loans. The true additional taxpayer cost due to the recent rise in government borrowing costs is likely around £10 billion per year. It's a lot of money. The exact number will depend on graduates' future earnings and future RPI inflation, which governs student loan interest rates. Predictions for either of these are highly uncertain. What is certain, however, is that funding student loans has become substantially more expensive for the government over the past two years, and official measures do not reflect that at all. So, simply put, the costs of borrowing for the government have increased. One way of measuring the government's ability to finance new borrowing is the annual yield on 15-year gilts, where 15 years is roughly the average time to maturity of outstanding gilts. Now, bear with me. Don't worry. Gilts are the debt the government sells to fund stuff. These are bought by banks, investors, asset management funds, pension funds, and so on, to make a small but virtually guaranteed profit. They're a very low-risk, low-return investment, unlike, say, stocks or certain kinds of corporate bonds. If you have a diverse portfolio, you're going to want gilts or in the US treasuries. After all, the UK won't go bankrupt or insolvent. And as recently as the end of 2021, this yield was still only 1.2%, meaning the costs of borrowing for the UK were low. Meanwhile, over the same period, RPI inflation, the favoured measure of inflation for the UK, was projected by the Office for Budget Responsibility to average 2.6%. So, relative to RPI inflation, the gilt yield was negative. 
negative yields. This meant that by holding the loan value constant in RPI terms, financial actors were willing to pay the government roughly 1.4% of the loan value every year for the privilege of lending it money. So private actors would finance this stuff and the government would make a bit of money too. At the same time, students who studied after 2012 were charged interest on their loans at a rate between the rate of RPI inflation and RPI plus 3%. That, that kind of changed depending how much you earned. You paid an interest rate equivalent to RPI if you earned more than £21,000 a year and RPI plus 3% if you earned over £27,000. I think it was £27,250 which meant that even by late 2021, the government could expect to make a profit on the loans of graduates who would eventually pay their loans off in full. Not great, you might think. Who lends so much money that you basically write off 50% of loans? But it made some sense. After all, this is a way of funding higher education. But now all of the loans are losing the government money. All of them. If you studied before 2012, you had an interest rate of 1.5%. That's what I had studying. However, after 2012, we see a major shift in how student loans are financed and the, the terms of repayment. Uh, you have, for anyone earning more than uh, £21,000, I believe, it was uh, RPI, as we've said. And then for 27000 it was RPI plus 3%. Now, this is what's really important because... In the last year, two years, obviously, we've seen a massive rise in inflation, a massive rise in RPI, which was obviously unforeseen by the people that came up with that idiotic policy. So a year ago, basically, RPI plus 3% meant people were looking at effectively credit card style interest rates. The government, in the end, had to cap it. Almost like they didn't foresee what was very possible. They just presumed inflation would stay low forever because they don't actually use their brains. So who's winning in this system? The taxpayer is now, as I've already said, on the hook for losing £10 billion this year. People are in greater debt to study things like nursing or to teach kids or to become junior doctors never before. The average nurse graduates with £50,000 worth of debt. It's a really extraordinary story of mismanagement, misgovernment, and almost maliciously stupid policymaking. And yet, in 2010, when these proposals were being mooted, when we saw tuition fees not only tripled, but these new terms being put forward too, anybody that said it was a bad idea was dismissed. Oh, you're protesting. You're on the streets. You must be wrong. You must be stupid. My co-founder here at Navarra Media and I, James Butler, we were on student protests saying precisely that, that these changes were wrong, short-sighted, self-destructive. They would destroy higher education. They would cost people more money, and they would even cost the taxpayer money too. We weren't listened to. We were scoffed at. We were derided. The worst of all, many people in the media and in politics said that we were idiots, that in fact, these new changes were more progressive than before. Apparently, somebody paying uh, a huge amount of a loan back with an interest rate of 10% rather than 1.5%, apparently, if you're earning £30,000 a year as a nurse, and those are the change terms of your loan repayment, apparently that's progressive. I don't know how many degrees you need to think that, but apparently lots of smart people in the media and in politics were saying that. They have been decisively proven wrong.
But I'll finish with this. On HE funding and how we finance uh, degrees and universities in this country, this country is a headless chicken because the Liberal Democrats, the Labour Party, and the Conservatives all bought in to a system which doesn't work and which has decisively failed. So it's hard to think those same parties will be the ones to contrive a solution. And next story. Talk TV's Julia Hartley Brewer isn't exactly known for being the most compassionate person in the British media. And in the Israel-Palestine conflict, she's predictably decided to side with Israel, even though thousands of innocent Palestinian civilians have been killed and two million people are facing displacement. But earlier today, she asked an especially outlandish question, even by her standards. All of these organizations, the Hamas, the Hezbollahs, the, the, the Houthis, everyone, they are, as you say, they are Islamists. They, they disapprove of everything in the West. They disapprove all of our values. Of, mm -hmm. uh, um, and and you know, they are, they're not doing any good for the people that they claim to represent. I don't think any of these organizations or Iran care two hoots about the Palestinian people. They have been used as a really useful, as you say, sort of totemic sort of issue to mm -hmm. sort of beat Israel and beat the West with all these years. But when it comes to the point of like, well, you know what? Well, maybe you should take these people. Maybe the solution is that these people aren't in this sort of prison camp that Gaza's been called, even though, of course, actually, you see pictures before, um, you know, not at all a prison camp. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that maybe, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, that, that these people should be offered a new life elsewhere. Now, many may not want it, but we have seen, and I was really surprised when I discovered this, this is my own ignorance, and apologies for that, but this, the awful phrase, ethnic cleansing, I don't like that phrase. There's a difference between, you know, uh, people being, you know, uh, you know killed to be, to be removed from a, a, a piece of land than, than, than the forced expulsion. This has happened numerous times, and in recent years, since the, since the Second World War, there were huge numbers of peoples in their millions who were moved from, you know, from, from lands, moved to basically, there was non-stop uh, you know, fighting between ethnic minorities, right, you know, you're, you know, you're going to Greece, you're going to Turkey, you're going to Albania, you're going wherever. This has actually been incredibly common. And of course, we've seen the ethnic cleansing of Jews and Christians in the Middle East without anyone batting an eye lit about that. A new life elsewhere. Ethnic cleansing, just got a rebrand. After all, we don't like that phrase. It's not very pleasant. Just imagine, Armenian genocide, that was a new life elsewhere. Greek genocide, only a few hundred thousand people died, maybe three quarters of a million. Only more than a million people were torn from their homes. But let's reframe. Why are you being so pessimistic? It was a new life elsewhere. And then, of course, there were the almost 14 million Germans who fled or were expelled from Central and Eastern Europe after 1945. Explicable, obviously, given what just happened, but as many as a million people died as a result, the majority of which, the vast majority of which, were women and children. No big deal. It was a new life elsewhere. Put a smile on your face. Isn't it strange? Julia Harley Brewer doesn't like refugees coming to Europe, particularly Britain, but here she's cheering on it seems to me, anyway, the creation of refugees, a new life elsewhere. Unless, of course, you come here to Britain, in which case it's very bad. Michael, Julia Hartley Brewer openly asked if ethnic cleansing was the answer to the Israel-Palestine conflict, didn't she? Well, I hadn't seen that clip actually before just then. And I was, you know, when she was saying, I don't like the word ethnic cleansing, I thought she was going to try and, you know, find a, a way of dressing it up as something else. And she said, 
forced expulsions. <laughs> so she's she suddenly she thinks that forced oh let's not call it ethnic cleansing forced expulsions though that sounds reasonable doesn't it? No, forced expulsions doesn't sound reasonable. Julia Hartley Brewer, and I suppose the argument that's sort of underlying this, I think, what she's intimating towards, because she you know she she isn't saying these people should come to Britain because obviously if if, if they came to Britain then then she'd suddenly think that they were chances and they were just here to get benefits. Right, that, that's the argument she'd then use. So she is saying, um, you know, if if, um, if 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 Iran and Lebanon, if they care so much, um, they should take um, the refugees from from Gaza. She sort of says, oh, not not all of them might want to leave, and then she brings up forced expulsion. Completely, completely bizarre. But what I want to say is that this argument has been made before. Right. Oh, well, you know, no one else wants to take them. So why should the Israelis have to tolerate the Palestinians in Gaza? Like if, if, um, if, the, if the Lebanese or the Iranians really care, why don't they take them? Someone else who made those arguments was Hitler. Right. You know, you don't want to bring up Hitler all the time, but I mean, it's, it, it's very relevant in this situation. I recommend people watch um, a documentary, The US and the Holocaust. It's a Ken Burns documentary. Really good, really powerful. And the whole first episode of that, it's a three-parter, is Jews trying to leave Germany in the 1930s and other parts of of Europe, trying to leave Germany in the 1930s. And because of restrictive immigration in the United States and elsewhere, in part because of anti-Semitism in those countries, right, then they they were unable to leave Germany. Many of those people unable to leave Germany ended up dying in the Holocaust. Actually, Anne Frank's family um, took a, a boat to the United States but weren't allowed to dock and were sent back. And Hitler used that as an argument. Well, you don't want to take these Jews either. Look, it's, 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 no one wants to take these people. You, you can't say you've got the moral high ground. I don't want them in Germany, but you don't want them in America. And it's also, I think, important because when people talk about genocide, they say, oh, no, they don't want all of these people to die. They would prefer to just get rid of them. And again, that's normally how genocide happens, actually. It's not normally that people have a a, a desire um, specifically to kill people. The first thing that's normally tried is to push them out, to get rid of them. And then killing them ends up being sort of, oh, okay, well, if we can't get rid of them, we'll kill them. You know, it's just as evil, it's just as disgusting. But I, I think you often get a sort of apologia for, I mean, what's currently going on in Gaza and, and elsewhere. Say, oh, no, they don't really want to kill them. They just want to get rid of them. But then if they don't leave, we'll kill them. No, we didn't want to kill them. It's just that they wouldn't leave. Right? That actually is the classic justification for genocide. And I mean, Julie Hartley Brewer's argument sounded pretty much like it could go in that direction. I, it, it wasn't clear to me what she would have as her plan B if forced expulsions weren't possible because no one would um, want to um, take the Palestinians of Gaza in part because they don't want to be, you know, an accessory to to ethnic cleansing. Also, as we've talked about before on this show. You know, if if you are a, a country that takes a really significant amount of of Palestinians from Gaza in the region, um, there is a chance that that would be destabilizing because you've got a lot of people who feel that they've been you know very much unjustly treated. If they were in Lebanon or Egypt, for example, there would be some people um, trying to continue the struggle against Israel. You know, perfectly reasonably. Right. This is actually um, one of the reasons why sort of Lebanon got drafted into into civil wars because the PLO were sort of expelled from from historic Palestine ended up in Lebanon. So you have various practical problems with forced expulsions as well as the moral problem. And when you sort of encounter those problems, that's when genocides happen. So I think uh, Julie Hartley Brewer is on very dangerous territory here. 
I have to say as well, Michael, you know, it's an overused adjective, Trumpian. But this was incredible. It was like Donald Trump meets like mid-20th century totalitarianism. I don't call it ethnic cleansing. I call it searching for new life elsewhere. Like, can, can you believe, can, can, can you hear yourself? I like to reframe. It's like the ultimate, you know, it's like an estate agent trying to sell you uh, a wheelie bin and saying it's a studio flat. Like, it's just, you're, you're living in an alternative reality. Uh, this is on British television, by the way. This, this is a broadcast TV. And you have people saying, oh my God, the fake news on YouTube and kids listening to stuff on TikTok. Okay. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining me this evening on our odyssey through the idiocy of British politics and media. Thanks for having me on. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.